0: SECTION 2 OF FROM PLOTS TO BOSTON This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. FROM PLOTS TO BOSTON BY MARY ANTON SECTION 2 There was a terrible confusion in the baggage room where we were directed to go. Boxes, baskets, bags, valises, and great shapeless things belonging to no particular class were thrown about by porters and other men, who sorted them and put tickets on all but those containing provisions, while others were opened and examined in haste. At last our turn came, and our things, along with those of all other American-bound travelers, were taken away to be steamed and smoked and other such processes gone through. We were told to wait till notice should be given us of something else to be done. Our train would not depart till nine in the evening. As usual, I noticed all the little particulars of the waiting-room. What else could I do with so much time and not even a book to read? I could describe it exactly. The large square room, painted walls, long tables with fruits and drinks of all kinds covering them, the white chairs, carved settees, beautiful china and cut glass showing through the glass doors of the dressers, and the nickel samovar, which attracted my attention, because I had never seen any but copper or brass ones. The best and the worst of everything, there was a large case full of books. It was the best because they were books, and all could use them. The worst because they were all in German, and my studies in the railway depot of Kibart had not taught me so much that I should be able to read books in German. It was very hard to see people get those books and enjoy them, while I couldn't. It was impossible to be content with other people's pleasure, and I wasn't. When I had almost finished counting the books, I noticed that Mama and the others had made friends with a family of travelers like ourselves. Frau Gittelmann and her five children made very interesting companions for the rest of the day, and they seemed to think that Frau Anton and the four younger Antons were just as interesting, perhaps excepting in their minds one of them who must have appeared rather uninteresting from a habit she had of looking about as if always expecting to make discoveries. But she was interested, if not interesting, enough, when the oldest of the young Gittlemans, who was a young gentleman of seventeen, produced some books which she could read then all had a merry time together, reading, talking, telling the various adventures of the journey, and walking, as far as we were allowed, up and down the long platform outside, till we were called to go and see, if we wanted to see, how our things were being made fit for further travel. It was interesting to see how they managed to have anything left to return to us after all the processes of airing and smoking and steaming, and other assaults on the supposed germs of the dreaded cholera had been done with, the pillows even being ripped open to be steamed. All this was interesting, but we were rather disagreeably surprised when a bill for these unasked-for services had to be paid. The Gittlemans, we found, were to keep us company for some time. At the expected hour we all tried to find room in a car indicated by the conductor, We tried, but could only find enough space on the floor for our baggage, on which we made believe sitting comfortably. For now, we were obliged to exchange the comparative comforts of a third-class passenger train for the certain discomforts of a fourth-class one. There were only four narrow benches in the whole car, and about twice as many people were already seated on these as they were probably supposed to accommodate." All other space to the last inch was crowded by passengers or their luggage. It was very hot and close and altogether uncomfortable. And still, at every new station, fresh passengers came crowding in and actually made room, spare as it was, for themselves. It became so terrible that all glared madly at the conductor as he allowed more people to come into that prison and trembled at the announcement of every station. I cannot see even now how the officers could allow such a thing. It was really dangerous. The most remarkable thing was the good nature of the poor passengers. Few showed a sour face even. Not a man used any strong language, audibly at least. They smiled at each other as if they meant to say, I am having a good time, so are you, aren't you? Young Gittleman was very gallant, and so cheerful that he attracted everybody's attention. He told stories, laughed, and made us unwilling to be outdone. During one of his narratives he produced a pretty memorandum book that pleased one of us very much, and that pleasing gentleman at once presented it to her. She has kept it since in memory of the giver, and in the right place I could tell more about that matter. Very interesting. I have given so much space to the description of that one night's adventures because I remember it so distinctly, with all its discomforts, and the contrast of our fellow travelers' kindly dispositions. At length that dreadful night passed, and at dawn about half the passengers left all at once. There was such a sigh of relief and stretching of cramped limbs as can only be imagined, as the remaining passengers inhaled the fresh, cold air of a dewy dawn. It was almost worth the previous suffering to experience the pleasure of relief that followed. All day long we traveled in the same train, sleeping, resting, eating, and wishing to get out. But the train stopped for a very short time at the many stations, and all the difference that made to us was that pretty girls passed through the cars with little bark baskets filled with fruit and flowers, hardly fresher or prettier than their bearers, who generally sold something to our young companion, for he never wearied of entertaining us. Other interests there were none, the scenery was nothing unusual only towns depots roads fields little country houses with barns and cattle and poultry all such as we were well acquainted with if something new did appear it was passed before one could get a good look at it the most pleasing sights were little barefoot children waving their aprons or hats as we eagerly watched for them because they reminded us of our doing the same thing when we saw the passenger trains in the country we used to wonder whether we should ever do so again. Towards evening, we came into Berlin. I grow dizzy even now when I think of our whirling through that city. It seemed we were going faster and faster all the time, but it was only the whirl of trains passing in opposite directions and close to us that made it seem so. The sight of crowds of people such as we had never seen before hurrying to and fro in and out of great depots that danced past us, helped to make it more so. Strange sights, splendid buildings, shops, people, and animals, all mingled in one great confused mass of a disposition to continually move in a great hurry, wildly, with no other aim but to make one's head go round and round in following its dreadful motions. Round and round went my head, it was nothing but trains depots crowds crowds depots trains again and again with no beginning no end only a mad dance faster and faster we go faster still and the noise increases with the speed bells whistles hammers locomotives shrieking madly men's voices peddlers cries horses hoofs dogs barking all united in doing their best to drown every other sound but their own and made such a deafening uproar in the attempt that nothing could keep it out. Whirl, noise, dance, uproar! Will it last forever? I'm so, oh, dizzy! How my head aches! And, oh, those people will be run over! Stop the train! They'll—thank goodness nobody is hurt! But who ever heard of a train passing right through the middle of a city, up in the air, it seems? Oh dear, it's no use thinking. My head spins so right through the business streets. Why, whoever? I must have lived through a century of this terrible motion and din and unheard-of roads for trains and confused thinking. But at length everything began to take a more familiar appearance again. The noise grew less, the roads more secluded, and by degrees we recognized the dear peaceful country. Now we could think of Berlin, or rather what we had seen of it, more calmly, and wonder why it made such an impression. I see now we had never seen so large a city before, and were not prepared to see such sights bursting upon us so suddenly as that. It was like allowing a blind man to see the full glare of the sun all at once. Our little plots, and even the larger cities we had passed through, compared to berlin about the same as total darkness does to a great brilliancy of light in a great lonely field opposite a solitary wooden house within a large yard our train pulled up at last and a conductor commanded the passengers to make haste and get out he need not have told us to hurry we were glad enough to be free again after such a long imprisonment in the uncomfortable car all rushed to the door We breathed more freely in the open field, but the conductor did not wait for us to enjoy our freedom. He hurried us into the one large room which made up the house, and then into the yard. Here a great many men and women dressed in white received us, the women attending to the women and girls of the passengers, and the men to the others. This was another scene of bewildering confusion, parents losing their children and the little ones crying, baggage being thrown together in one corner of the yard, heedless of content, which suffered in consequence. Those white-clad Germans shouting commands, always accompanied with, quick, quick, the confused passengers obeying all orders like meek children, only questioning now and then what was going to be done with them. And no wonder if, in some minds, stories arose of people being captured by robbers, murderers, and the like. Here we had been taken to a lonely place where only that house was to be seen. Our things were taken away. Our friends separated from us. A man came to inspect us, as if to ascertain our full value. Strange-looking people driving us about like dumb animals, helpless and unresisting. Children we could not see, crying in a way that suggested terrible things. Ourselves driven into a little room where a great kettle was boiling on a little stove our clothes taken off, our bodies rubbed with a slippery substance that might be any bad thing, a shower of warm water let down on us without warning, again driven to another little room where we sit, wrapped in woolen blankets till large coarse bags are brought in, their contents turned out, and we see only a cloud of steam, and hear the women's orders to dress ourselves, quick, quick, or else we'll miss, something we cannot hear, we are forced to pick out our clothes from among all the others with a steam blinding us. We choke, cough, entreat the women to give us time. They persist. Quick, quick, or you'll miss the train. Oh, so we really won't be murdered. They are only making us ready for the continuing of our journey, cleaning us of all suspicions of dangerous germs. Thank God. Assured by the word train, we manage to dress ourselves after a fashion and the man comes again to inspect us. All is right, and we are allowed to go into the yard to find our friends and our luggage. Both are difficult tasks, the second even harder. Imagine all the things of some hundreds of people making a journey like ours, being mostly unpacked and mixed together in one sad heap. It was disheartening, but done at last was the task of collecting our belongings, and we were marched into the big room again. Here on the bare floor in a ring sat some Polish men and women singing some hymn in their own tongue and making more noise than music. We were obliged to stand and await further orders, the few seats being occupied, and the great door barred and locked. We were in a prison and again felt some doubts. Then a man came in and called the passengers' names, and when they answered, they were made to pay two marks each for the pleasant bath we had just been forced to take another half-hour and our train arrived the door was opened and we rushed out into the field glad to get back even to the fourth-class car we had lost sight of the gittlemans who were going a different way now and to our regret hadn't even said good or thanked them for their kindness after the preceding night of wakefulness and discomfort the weary day in the train the dizzy whirl through berlin the fright we had from the rough proceedings of the germans and all the strange experiences of the place we just escaped. After all this, we needed rest. But to get it was impossible for all but the youngest children. If we had borne great discomforts on the night before, we were suffering now. I had thought anything worse impossible. Worse it was now. The car was even more crowded, and people gasped for breath. People sat on strangers' laps, only glad of that. The floor was so thickly lined that the conductor could not pass, and the tickets were passed to him from hand to hand. Tonight all were more worn out, and that did not mend their dispositions. They could not help falling asleep and colliding with somebody's nodding head, which called out angry mutterings and growls. Some fell off their seats and caused a great commotion by rolling over on the sleepers on the floor, and in spite of my own sleepiness and weariness, I had many quiet laughs by myself as I watched the funny actions of the poor travelers. Not until very late did I fall asleep. I, with the rest, missed the pleasant company of our friends, the Gittlemans, and thought about them as I sat perched on a box with an old man's knees for the back of my seat, another man's head continually striking my right shoulder a dozen or so arms being tossed restlessly right in front of my face, and as many legs holding me a fast prisoner so that I could only try to keep my seat against all the assaults of the sleepers who tried in vain to make their positions more comfortable. It was also comical, in spite of all the inconveniences, that I tried hard not to laugh out loud till I too fell asleep. I was awakened very early in the morning by something chilling and uncomfortable on my face, like raindrops coming down irregularly. I found it was a neighbor of mine eating cheese, who was dropping bits on my face. So I began the day with a laugh at the man's funny apologies, but could not find much more fun in the world on account of the cold and the pain of every limb. It was very miserable, till some breakfast cheered me up a little. About eight o'clock we reached Hamburg. Again there was a gendarme to ask questions, look over the tickets and give directions. But all the time he kept a distance from those passengers who came from Russia, all for fear of the cholera. We had noticed before how people were afraid to come near us, but since that memorable bath in Berlin and all the steaming and smoking of our things, it seemed unnecessary. We were marched up to the strangest sort of vehicle one could think of. It was a something I don't know any name for, though a little like an express wagon. At that time I had never seen such a high, narrow, long thing, so high that the women and girls couldn't climb up without the men's help and great difficulty, so narrow that two persons could not sit comfortably side by side, and so long that it took me some time to move my eyes from the rear end, where the baggage was, to the front, where the driver sat. When all had settled down at last, there were a number besides ourselves the two horses started off very fast in spite of the heavy load. Through noisy, strange-looking streets they took us, where many people walked or ran or rode. Many splendid houses, stone and brick, and showy shops they passed. Much that was very strange to us we saw, and little we knew anything about. There a little cart loaded with bottles or tin cans drawn by a goat or a dog, sometimes two, attracted our attention. Sometimes it was only a nurse carrying a child in her arms that seemed interesting from the strange dress. Often it was some article displayed in a shop window or door, or the usually smiling owner standing in the doorway that called for our notice. Not that there was anything really unusual in many of these things, but a certain air of foreignness, which sometimes was very vague, surrounded everything that passed before our interested gaze as the horses hastened on the strangest sight of all we saw as we came into the still noisier streets. Something like a horse car such as we had seen in Vilna for the first time, except that it was open on both sides, in most cases, but without any horses, came flying, really flying, past us. For we stared and looked at it all over and above and under, and rubbed our eyes and asked of one another what we saw, and nobody could find what it was that made the thing go. And go it did, one after another, faster than we with nothing to move it. Why, what is that? we kept exclaiming. Really, do you see anything that makes it go? I'm sure I don't. Then I ventured the highly probable suggestion. Perhaps it's a fat man in the gray coat and hat with silver buttons. I guess he pushes it. I've noticed one in front on every one of them, holding on to that shining thing and I'm sure this was as wise a solution of the mystery as anyone could give, except the driver, who laughed to himself and his horses over our surprise and wonder at nothing he could see to cause it. But we couldn't understand his explanation, though we always got along very easily with the Germans, and not until much later did we know that those wonderful things, with only a fat man to move them, were electric cars. The sight-seeing was not all on our side, I noticed many people stopping to look at us as if amused, though most passed by as though used to such sights. We did make a queer appearance, all in a long row up above people's heads. In fact, we looked like a flock of giant fowls roosting, only wide awake. Suddenly, when everything interesting seemed at an end, we all recollected how long it was since we had started on our funny ride. Hours, we thought, and still the horses ran. Now we rode through quieter streets, where there were fewer shops and more wooden houses. Still the horses seemed to have but just started. I looked over our perch again. Something made me think of a description I had read of criminals being carried on long journeys and uncomfortable things, like this. Well, it was strange, this long, long drive, the conveyance, no word of explanation and all, though going different ways being packed off together. We were strangers. The driver knew it. He might take us anywhere. How could we tell? I was frightened again, as in Berlin. The faces around me confessed the same. The streets became quieter still. No shops, only little houses, hardly any people passing. Now we cross many railway tracks, and I can hear the sea not very distant. There are many trees now by the roadside, and the wind whistles through their branches." THE WHEELS AND HOOFS MAKE A GREAT NOISE ON THE STONES. THE ROAR OF THE SEA AND THE WIND AMONG THE BRANCHES HAVE AN UNFRIENDLY SOUND. THE HORSES NEVER WEARY. STILL THEY RUN. THERE ARE NO HOUSES NOW IN VIEW, SAVE NOW AND THEN A SOLITARY ONE, FAR AWAY. I CAN SEE THE OCEAN. OH, IT IS STORMY. THE DARK WAVES ROLL INWARD. THE WHITE FOAM FLIES HIGH IN THE AIR. DEEP SOUNDS COME FROM IT. THE WHEELS AND HOOFS MAKE A GREAT NOISE. The wind is stronger and says, do you hear the sea? And the ocean's roar threatens. The sea threatens and the wind bids me hear it. And the hoofs and the wheels repeat the command. And so do the trees by gestures. Yes, we are frightened. We are very still. Some Polish women over there have fallen asleep and the rest of us look such a picture of woe and yet so funny. It's a sight to see and remember. At last, at last, those unwearied horses have stopped. Where? In front of a brick building, the only one on a large, broad street, where only the trees and in the distance the passing trains can be seen. Nothing else. The ocean, too, is shut out. All were helped off, the baggage put on the sidewalk, and then taken up again and carried into the building, where the passengers were ordered to go on the left side of the little corridor was a small office where a man sat before a desk covered with papers these he pushed aside when we entered and called us in one by one except of course children as usual many questions were asked the new ones being about our tickets then each person children included had to pay three marks one for the wagon that brought us over and two for food and lodgings till our various ships should take us away. Mama, having five to pay for, owed fifteen marks. The little sum we started with was to last us to the end of the journey, and would have done so if there hadn't been those unexpected bills to pay at Kibart, Eichkunen, Berlin, and now at the office. Seeing how often services were forced upon us unasked, and payment afterwards demanded, Mother had begun to fear that we should need more money, And had sold some things to a woman for less than a third of their value. In spite of that, so heavy was the drain on the spare purse where it had not been expected, she found to her dismay that she had only twelve marks left to pay the new bill. End of section two.